Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hang up and listen. Olympics Extra is brought to you by Rocket Mortgage from Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage process into the 21st century with an easy online process. Check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com slash hangup. Hi, this is Josh Levine. I'm Slate's sports editor and the host of Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen. It's August 19th, 2016. And this is your Hang Up and Listen Olympics Extra. On Thursday in Rio, Argentina beat Belgium 4-2 to to win its first gold in men's field hockey. Here is how that victory was written up in the English language Buenos Aires Herald. Field hockey will no longer be considered a female sport. Men also play hockey and win. The U.S. women's basketball team beat France 86-67, despite playing without point guard Sue Bird. It was the 48th straight win at the Olympics for the five-time defending gold medalists. They're going to make it 49 when they play Spain in the gold medal game on Saturday. They already beat the Spaniards by 40 points, 103-63 in pool play. Helen Maroulis became the first American woman to win a gold medal in wrestling beating three-time defending Olympic champ Saori Yoshida of Japan to take first in the 53-kilogram weight class. Marula said she had to give up chocolate and salad dressing to get down to 53 kilograms. The reporters in Rio fell down on the job by failing to ask her what kind of salad dressing she gave up. I'm going to guess blue cheese. Better news for Japan is that a pair of women, Misaki Matsutomo and Ayaka Takahashi, became the first non-Chinese pair since 1992 to win gold in badminton doubles. 
Matsutomo and Takahashi were down 19-16 in the decisive first to 21 third game before winning the last five points in a row. Let's listen to the last point. There are no announcers on this feed, so just revel in the badminton noises. Also on Thursday, Jamaica's Usain Bolt won his eighth Olympic gold medal and second of the Rio Games, winning the 200 meters in a slow for the fastest man ever time of 19.78 seconds. Karan Clement of the U.S. won his first ever Olympic gold in the men's 400 meter hurdles and the same for American Dalila Muhammad in the women's 400 meter hurdles. But we're going to leave that track stuff aside for a while and talk about the men's shot put where Americans Ryan Krauser and Joe Kovacs finished first and second on Thursday night. You can't forget the women's javelin, where Sarah Kolak of Croatia won gold, and the decathlon, where the United States' Ashton Eaton tied the Olympic record with 8,893 points in the 10-discipline event and winning his second gold medal. Joining us now to discuss the decathlon and the shot put and the javelin and everything else that makes up the back half of the phrase track and field is Dwight Stones, the former world record holder in the high jump, He's a winner of two Olympic medals, three-time Olympian. He's covered every Summer Olympics since 1984 for NBC for most of that period and this year for ESPN International. He's also a personal high jump coach for high schoolers in California. So if there are any teenagers in your life who need to leap over a high horizontal bar, look him up at DwightStonesSports.com. Dwight, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Sure. And I want to start with Ashton Eden who joined Bob Mathias and Daley Thompson as the only men to win two decathlon gold medals. The winner of the decathlon is still given the honorific of world's greatest athlete, but it is not the glamour event that it used to be. And Ashton Eaton is not getting the screen time of, say, Simone Biles or Michael Phelps or Katie Ledecky here in the U.S. You were on the Olympic team in 1976 with uh, then Bruce Jenner, now obviously Caitlyn Jenner, won gold and basically owned that Olympic. So what do you think has changed? Well, I think the proliferation of different kinds of sports and the elevation of a, of a professional sports to a much higher level. Back in the 70s, the NBA championships used to be on tape delay at 1130 at night on the West Coast. It just wasn't a thing until Magic Johnson and Larry Bird came along. And think about all the great NBA players there were well before them. Um, it just wasn't something that had been properly marketed and, and didn't capture the imagination of the audience the way it was probably meant to do. And you have a number of very, very smart, very, very savvy owners who hired very smart people to promote their brand. And um, as that happened more and more, track and field did not innovate. It did not move forward in that area. Uh, We had someone running the organization at the time who was in the pocket of one of the TV networks. And it was in his best interest to sort of uh, continue to corral and continue to perpetuate the ridiculousness of, uh, of the word amateur in amateur sports back in the 70s and 80s when track was enjoying arguably its highest popularity. We were filling indoor arenas uh, pretty much every weekend, and uh, we had a lot of eyes on us, but we were not on TV nearly as much as we deserved to be. And as the rest of the sports innovated and learned how to market themselves to the public, this guy did not do that for our sport. And because we were not allowed to 
endorse products or really make money in any way uh, above board, above the table, there's nothing we could do to drive it. I did everything I could, and I ended up losing my eligibility over it and cost me a lot of money to get my eligibility back in 1980. So I, I gave it my best shot, and um, I think that the fact that amateur is now no longer in the, the name of our federation, and, and that's really sort of a, uh, an old expression. I'm proud of my small contribution to that, but we just have so much ground to make up. Um, in terms of Ashton Eaton not getting the notoriety, first of all, the U.S. does very, very well in the Olympic Games, and it's expected that you're going to win a gold medal. Right. Um, you know, we settle for silver and bronze. You know, Nike tells you that uh, second place is the first loser. So when you perpetuate that type of an idea to, to the public, um, the multiple gold medals, and Michael Phelps has only made this worse for uh, athletes who only win a single gold medal, or, <laughs> God forbid, they don't win a gold medal at all. Um, that has really, frankly, hurt uh, a guy like Ashton Eaton or any uh, medalist in the Olympic Games because of the way that the networks have, have promoted the idea of multiple gold medalists. I mean, now it's a, it's a competition of who's getting on the weed box. Yeah, I want to cover all of this. You raised so many interesting points there that I'm not sure where to go next. But I want to kind of put a bow on the amateurism thing because people might not realize um, and you probably wouldn't phrase it this way, but you're kind of a hero of the death of the phony Olympic amateur ideal that this was litigated and you were a major part of that. Yeah, I am proud of that. And most people who do know about it, and I've had a number of athletes from different sports come up to me back in the 80s and 90s, thanking me for it, that I had sacrificed a couple of best years of my life being in my prime. But I just believed in that. I thought it was just such nonsense that we worked certainly as hard as, if not harder than, a lot of other athletes and other sports who were making a fortune and a living off of what they were doing. I mean, I did the best I could. It was my full-time job, and I had a series of very good shoe contracts that allowed me to do that, all of it you know, below the table. And uh, we were all making money, of course, competing in Europe, but it was all very hush-hush, and we were lining up in hallways until 2 in the morning to get paid, and sometimes the directors would stiff you. And you know, all those days, thank God, are, are gone. But um, that was life for a track and field athlete back in the 70s and 80s. And you know, I competed multiple years where I competed more than 50 times a year in order to make a living. Um, my, my idea was if, if I am going to compete against the Soviet bloc and the Eastern bloc nations, of athletes, um, that's a full-time job for them. They're students of their event, and they have it as good as anyone can have it in those countries, and I do not want to trade places with them. But if I'm going to beat them, I have to train like that, which means I have to train and, and have it be a full-time job. And the only way I can do that is to get paid doing it. And the only way to do it was to compete a lot because it was a volume-type situation. Now, if a high tripper competes 25 times in a year, you know, they're considered an Ironman. And I just laugh. And, and thank God for that. Good for them. They can train much differently than I did. They can focus much more often on jumping high. And um, that's why the event uh, enjoyed a wonderful surge here a couple of years ago where you had six guys in one year jump 240, including Derek Druin. My favorite, by the way, uh, of high jumpers on the current team. And, um, that's all good, but all events cycle in and out. And, um, I'm looking forward to the next time that the, the high jump enjoys, uh, an uptick and a lot of attention because most of the attention is, let's face it, on one guy, Usain Bolt, and he's a sprinter and he's great for our sport and we are going to miss him when he decides to retire. He makes a ton of money, uh, one of the top three paid athletes in the world and, 
him being a track and field athlete. I love that. I grin every time I even think about the idea that he is making a boatload of money and bringing that kind of attention to our sport. I've been a huge fan of track and field since I was nine years old. I watched closely. I studied closely. I got to know the athletes in my and other events. I, I learned what made them tick. I made. I, I learned what how they trained. I learned how they approach their events, and I do what I can to try and put that information out there to the uninitiated or uneducated who are willing to turn on a track meet and say, okay, teach me, entertain me, and maybe you can get a fan for life. That's my goal. So I want to ask you about how the field events in particular are televised. And you are, you know, the voice of the field events on NBC for decades. And the way it was always, um, you know, produced was, Let's go to Dwight with, you know, an update from the high jump, or let's go to Dwight with an update from the shot put. And to me, as a viewer, it always felt like it was kind of jammed in, like, let's go for a minute or two as we take a break between the heats of the, you know, 400 hurdles or the 200. And I was wondering if it felt that way to you, and if you feel like there's a better way to televise the field events and what your kind of critique is of, of how this stuff is televised. You don't know how glad I am that you've asked me this question. I don't know how much time you have, but let me try to condense this as best I can. Um, I'm no longer with NBC sports because they got really sick and tired of me constantly harping on them, doing the things that they would tell me that they wanted to do. They would sit me down and say, okay, we need to make field events a bigger part of the broadcast. We need to be have more parity between track and field. And uh, on and on and on. Starting in 1983, when I, when I did the world championships for them and competed in them, I started working for NBC in 1979. And I said, yeah, I'm all about that. This is what we need to do. And I would throw idea after idea after idea at them. So you'd think over 50-plus years you might innovate a little bit and maybe change up the format. Oh, no, because it's safe to cover running events. They're very segmentable. They fit beautifully in an 8-, 9-, 10-minute period where you can go to a commercial on either end. You can promote other things. They don't go away somewhere. It's predictable whether they run fast or slow. They still are going to race each other, and they're going to go round and round and round or in a straight line, and it's it's packageable. Field events, not so much. You can't really know how long they're going to take. You can't really know how far they're going to throw or how far they're going to jump or how high they're going to jump. And on paper, the event may look like it's going to be spectacular. And it can just be a dud. But they're not willing to roll the dice. Most recently, when this discussion was had in 2013, I said, okay, if this is what you really want, and I've heard this for 30 years, this is what you have to do. In, a, in an hour or a 90-minute show, you have to be willing to take one running event out of the live window. If you really want to devote time to a field event and do it correctly, I'm talking about bringing me in a day early, doing sit-down interviews with all of the protagonists, uh, running a feature on how, t- how the technique works and let me educate the public with, with really cool, sexy graphics and slow motion uh, uh, video and all that other stuff and have it take as long as a running event takes. You need to give me nine minutes to do a high jump and a shot put maybe. I'm willing to, I think two events and I'm willing to be the hero or the goat on whether the event 
pans out or not. I'll yeah. be the one responsible if I don't pick an event that does well. And I'm not going to be right all the time, but I'm willing to to pick wrong because I'm going to pick right more times than not. Yeah, yeah, that's great. We got to do all that. We got to do all that. We got to do all that. Well, number one, track and field does not make money on TV. Number two, all the things I was proposing cost money. It costs cameras. It costs tape machines. It costs more personnel. It costs just costs. And it, it, you don't get a return turn on your investment. So these guys, and we've had two terrible producers of track and field over the last 20 years. They are not innovators. They will, they do not want to do anything but play it safe. They can't produce their way out of a paper bag. And one of them runs the place now. So when you've got that in combination with the unwillingness to break out of the old mold, then, and you've got a guy screaming in the background, you said, you said, you said we were going to do this. You said last week you wanted to do this. So well, why aren't we doing it? And you get a guy like me who's also now in his 60s. There's only one analyst at NBC that's older than me. So the combination of those two things is why I'm down in Rio very happily for ESPN International. We have broadcast rights to the Caribbean nations who make a pretty strong uh, contribution to track and field. And I'm doing play-by-play. I'm calling races. I'm also being an analyst. And I'm in my glory. I never thought I would be able to do play-by-play at the Olympic Games. I've had... 25 years to study Tom Hammond over at NBC. I'm never going to be Tom Hammond. I'm never going to be able to turn that phrase and create that prose that he is able to do. But I am a track and field fan in the most strict meaning of that word. I am a fanatic for my sport and a huge promoter of my sport. And I'm going to try to personalize and make great those great athletes in my sport as best as I can using all of this knowledge that that I've collected in my head for more than 50 years, but when people are not willing to put their money where their mouth is and and uh, uh, continue to just string you along as to how it should be, that's why they're getting reamed over their track and field coverage, because same old, same old, you know, two minutes package that doesn't really tell the story of how dramatic an event happened to be, and the way you do it, because you did ask me. And they had the right idea. In 1992, when we did plausibly live, that was a, a terminology over NBC for the Barcelona Olympics. And you weave the event through the running events. You don't just say, okay, here's a two-minute package on how the shot put went last night. Instead, after two rounds, you tell the story of how the event is developing, then you go away. Then you come back maybe in another segment, next segment, and you do the next two rounds. And you make it look as though you are coming in on the event live. Most people would say, man, you've got some long days down there. What are you at a desk with a monitor and and you just call every throw? And that's what I wanted people to think. I wanted them to think I'm down there calling every throw, every jump. And we put the ones on the air that made the story. And I never revealed that that's not what we're doing. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the Olympics is tough. World championships is tough. I'm down there. I'm in my own little world in my own little spot and I've got paper everywhere. I got a monitor. I've got switchable, uh, cameras so I can go to an event and yeah, I'm I'm calling every jump and every throw. That's what I wanted them to think. And that's the way I think the event should be done. You got to weave them. You got to make them look part of the track meet. Field is 50% of the name and 43% of the events. And for it to be ignored, and belittled the way it has been at the network of the Olympics for the United States through 2032 is a disgrace and a disservice. And I don't see it changing anytime soon with the people that are running that place and the people that are producing the sport. I feel like I have a very good understanding of how you feel on this subject. <laughs> no, that was, that was 
great and clearly hit a nerve. And I can understand why, given your experience there. NBC kind of did what you're describing when they showed Krauser and Kovacs and the shot put where they would go and show the throat. But, you know, but as a viewer, you know that any jump they show or any throw that they're showing in the shot put, it's either going to be the like gold medal jump. There's not really any suspense there. It's not what the kind of magic of sports is, which is unscripted entertainment. We know that Usain Bolt's going to win, right? But you don't really, you don't 100% know. You tune in to see, you know, maybe he'll set a world record or maybe he'll pull up in the backstretch with a hamstring pull or maybe Andre de Grasse will like announce himself like Bolt announced himself in 2008. But when you're showing these field events in a packaged way, you know that the guy who appears on the screen who you've never heard of before, the only reason he's there is because he's going to you know, do a really great throw. Yeah, they don't like unscripted drama in the field events. They want scripted drama. And it, it, goes, it flies in the face of the way I think this thing should be done. Things do change. Something happens. They have the track meet because it isn't completely predictable. And, but the problem is it's also not predictable from a standpoint of what the outcome will be how long it'll take to, to happen. And when you're doing a regular invitational track meet, like a Prefontaine Classic or a New York Games or whatever it might be, um, you can have your wish list of what you'd like to put on there, but all the time that changes when the events actually start. You get one false start, that changes things. And that's what I introduced a number of years ago. I'd say, listen to my field producer, we've got to have a 35-second version of uh, a winning discus throw or a winning triple jump, whatever it might be that we wanted, that we plan to get on the air, ready to go in case of a false start, in case of some kind of a timing glitch, in case of something that makes it bad television. There's no worse television than watching eight sprinters walk as slowly as they can back to their starting block after some type of a, a starting malfunction, whether it be a false start or just a timing thing or, or anything else. It's the worst television ever, and it's more than a minute. So if you have a 35-second version of the winning discus throw at the Diamond League meet in, in, in Oregon, then it's like, okay, we handled that event. Yes, we had a three- or four-throw package, but now we've handled it, and now we can devote more time to the high jump or the pole vault or whatever we have coming later. But all the time with these two guys in the last 20 years that I worked with, it'd be like, no, no, we're going to hold that for later, hold that for later, hold that for later. And all of a sudden, you're in the last 15 minutes of the broadcast, and you've got four events that you promised up front. They said, talk about these events. I talked about them. I promoted them. I teased them. And now we're going to maybe get two of them in. So I look bad. They don't care about looking bad. And I get letters and Twitter and email and everything else of, hey, you said you were going to do this. Then, hey, you said you were going to do that. You know, I'm a huge throwing fan, and I think the throwers know that, and especially the shot put. Those guys are just great. They're the, the shot putters in this century have they get it? They totally get it, and they're great entertainers. And then they throw far too. And uh, I'm sorry, I'm not out there now like I would have normally been on the infield at the Olympic trial, getting to know Joe Kovacs and and Ryan Krauser and I and Daryl Hill and all the guys who are now coming up to replace Adam Nelson and Reese Hoffa and Christian Cantwell. So I could get in their heads and perpetuate the, what those guys have started because they are great entertainers. The event is very packageable. You can have it anywhere. You can have it in a mall parking lot. You can have it inside a mall. It's a, it should be a traveling show. 
take the events of track and field out of the arena and take them to the people because guess what? The people are not coming to the arena to see them anywhere in the country except in Eugene, Oregon. And that is a big, big step backward from what I was able to compete back in, in the 70s and 80s. I'm not, I've been making a lot of money, but I competed in front of big, big crowds and I set lots of world records. And that is what I have in my head as, as my contribution and, and my experience in the sport. Okay. So everything that you've said and, and advocated for makes sense to me. I would love to see the Dwight Stone's version of the Olympics, but you also acknowledged that from a cost benefit standpoint, it will never kind of make sense. It will never um, be more profitable to focus more on the shot put. And so are you kind of making a just broader call for NBC to just, you know, quote, do the right thing? Or do you think that there is some sort of like long-term economic rationale? Like what, like what is your, your case beyond just, I am a big fan of the field events and I think other people should be too. Yeah, no, not just the Don Quixote of track and field. I mean, I know that. That's not a that's not a a, a bulletin to me. Um, but it's been a catch twenty two. Also, going back to my original discussion about the guy that was running track and field in the U.S. for you know decades, when it was the AAU, when it was TAC, he simply did not keep pace with what the other sports were doing. Kept us down, kept us amateur, lined his own pockets with TV money and travel money and all kinds of other scandals, and. While the rest of the sports uh, took off, we were we were stagnant. And when television doesn't promote the sport, doesn't promote the whole sport, doesn't show the beauty and intricacy of the technical events the way that I believe that they should be shown so that people can uh, embrace them and enjoy them the way I think they should be enjoyed, then we don't move forward. Therefore, we don't make money. If, the, if we don't have the eyes on the, on the broadcasts, that means the advertising dollars are down. That means rights fees are not paid to put the events on TV. That's what's happening in the 60s and 70s. The networks paid the, the Federation for the rights to put events on TV. Now it's the exact opposite. The Federation pays the network, buys the time to put the product on TV. I mean, what is wrong with that movie? So, of course, every cent that is, that is spent is now it, it is a loss from a financial standpoint. And unless and until we build the audience such that networks are once again paying rights to put track and field on television, the things I'm proposing are not, uh, they make no sense at all. Dwight Stones is the Don Quixote of track and field, the self-professed yeah, Don Quixote no of, of track and field. No he, question. He is calling these Olympics for ESPN International, former world record holder in the high jump. You can find him online at DwightStonesSports.com. Dwight, thank you so much. Talk to you later. This episode of Hang Up and Listen is brought to you by Rocket Mortgage from Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage approval process into the 21st century. It's fast, it's powerful, and it's completely online. Rocket Mortgage has taken all the complicated, time-consuming parts of applying for a mortgage out of the equation. If you hate searching through stacks of old files and paperwork, Rocket Mortgage lets you easily share your bank statements and pay stubs at the touch of a button. Their convenient system helps you get approved in minutes for a custom mortgage solution that's been tailored to your unique financial situation. Even better, with Rocket Mortgage, you can do all of this on your phone or your tablet. 
It's a quick online process and you can manage it from the convenience of your couch. If you're looking to refinance your mortgage or buy a home, check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com slash hangup. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. Bolt got it up and going very quickly. He picks off Lemaitre. He picks off Martina. Merritt and DeGrasse are going to try and latch on, but he straightens up a long way in front, the big man. Running well, Alonzo Edward. Bolt is in front. We are witnessing history. The great champion adds to his legend. He wins the 200 and beats DeGrasse in 1979. This is a moment in time, a moment in sporting time that we will never forget. As mentioned earlier, Usain Bolt won the 200 meters on Thursday night. And every time the Jamaican dominates the field, which is every time he takes the track, we all wonder how he's able to build and maintain such huge leads over the other fastest men in the world. A couple of weeks ago, the Wall Street Journal published a piece that reads in part, Bolt is no different from every other incredibly fast man, hitting his top speed of about 27 miles per hour at about the 70 meter mark. From there, his speed drops, if only by a few hundredths of a second, for each 10 meters. But in a race that is determined by whiskers, every fraction of a second is vital. What this means is that Bolt isn't kicking into another gear and running away from the field. Instead, he's slowing down at a slower rate than anyone else. But David Epstein, our expert on the science of human performance, says everything I just read is actually a myth. Here's Epstein, a writer for ProPublica and the author of the book The Sports Gene, to debunk that myth of Usain Bolt's and deceleration. There's long been a maxim in sprinting that the best runners aren't actually hitting the highest top speeds. They're just slowing down slower than the other runners. Every Olympics, major publications tell this story, but for the most part, it isn't true. I've plotted velocity curves for many of Usain Bolt's biggest races, using data from the IAAF, the governing body for track and field, and I've plotted his competitors as well. And it is true that sprinters hit top speed somewhere between 60 and 80 meters, and then start slowing down, but that has nothing to do with why Bolt wins. When he set the 100-meter world record in Berlin in 2009, Bolt decelerated at nearly precisely the same proportional rate as American sprinter Tyson Gay, who got second. But Bolt hit a much higher top speed, and so was coming down from a higher high. In fact, he covered the ground from 60 to 80 meters in 1.61 seconds, the fastest ever recorded. In some of his other wins, he was neither the fastest nor slowest proportional decelerator in the race. But that's not really relevant, because the deceleration differences between competitors are a few hundredths of a second here and there, at most. It could only even possibly make a difference between sprinters who are trying to outlean one another at the line. Really, you don't even need any data to know that Bolt doesn't win by decelerating slower at the end of the race. Think back to the 100 final in Beijing in 2008, when he announced himself to the world with his first Olympic gold medal. Bolt was winning by so much that at around 80 or 85 meters, he turned to the crowd, started thumping his chest, and threw open his arms. I plotted that race as well, and Bolt was decelerating more while turning to the crowd than any other sprinter in any other race I've looked at, ever. And he still won by daylight and set the world record. Bolt isn't winning because he's slowing down slower. He's just faster than the other guys. 
David Epstein is a writer for ProPublica and the author of the book, The Sports Gene, Inside the Science of Extraordinary Athletic Performance. And now it is time for my after torch, my final after torch. The 2016 Olympics are almost over. Tears, sadness. And so it is time to look to the future. The future, Conan. Yes, the year 2020. The 2020 games in Tokyo will have six new sports, baseball, softball, karate, skateboarding, sport climbing, and surfing. These sports will make the Olympics totally radical, take my word for it. But in deciding to add these select few events, the International Olympic Committee also had to say no to the following sports, all of which applied for entry to the games. Air sports, dance sport, flying disc, Korfball, netball, orienteering, roller sports, sumo, and wushu. But the one I want to focus on today is a sport that was in the Summer Olympics from 1900 to 1920 and is trying to stage an Olympic comeback. It was one of the applicants that got rejected. That sport is tug of war. You can actually watch video on YouTube of the tug of war from the 1912 games where Great Britain beat Sweden. Unfortunately, it's a silent video, so I'm not going to play anything for you here. But trust me that several members of the winning British team had cool mustaches and that it looked like a tug of war. This is a very elemental sport. There are two teams of people pulling on a rope. And that was pretty much what it was in 1912. That's what it is today. A 2012 CNN piece about the sports bid to get back to the games claims that in the U.S., it's these days played mostly in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, and Illinois which is apparently the pulling-on-a-rope belt of this great country. Not a rope belt, the pulling-on-a-rope belt. According to the British Tug-of-War Association, tug-of-war in the early Olympics was held at catch weight, and that means no weight limit, only for men's teams. Whereas the modern game, it's now held in weight classes. They're both men's teams and ladies' teams, as well as junior and under-23 teams. They're mixed-gender teams uh, introduced in the last couple of years. And there's also indoor tug-of-war on a mat and outdoor tug-of-war on grass. The sport's international governing body is the Tug-of-War International Federation. If you happen to be in Malmö, Sweden, at the beginning of September, they're holding their world championships there. The federation publishes a monthly magazine, and I would suggest that you check it out online. The August issue includes an article that I'm going to quote from at length. It's by Andrew Clark, and it begins... Tug-of-war has been viewed as a dangerous and idiotic sport and has been criticized for many years. These negative views and opinions are due to previous years where tug-of-war was only pulled in pub scenarios. In recent years, tug-of-war has been held in other venues outside of the drinking scene, but views and opinions are still very hard to change. Although there are negative sides to tug-of-war, there are also the positives that can help to benefit the lives of many people. Tug-of-war not only provides fun and teamwork, but also provides the knowledge and understanding of the importance of fitness and proper diet. In recent years, governments have expressed their concerns on the increased levels of obesity in underactive people. And this is why I decided to create a machine that could cater for all the needs of this sport. So this is basically an advertisement for a tug-of-war machine. This is an elemental sport, but sometimes you just don't have another team of people to practice tug-of-war with. If you want to be a top-notch tug-of-war athlete, 
uh, you know, when this sport eventually makes it back to the Olympics, you need a tug of war machine. So go to protug.com, P-R-O-T-U-G.com to buy your tug of war machine. And if there's anything that these Hang Up and Listen Olympic Extra podcasts have done, I hope it's just sold one tug of war machine. So this is our last Hang Up and Listen Olympics Extra. And that is sad because these were very fun to do. I want to thank all of our guests from the last two weeks. Frank Four, Devorah Myers, Terry Laughlin, Michelle Vatisse, Karen Shelton, Megan Abbott, Lauren Fleshman, Mina Kimes, and Dwight Stones. I want to thank Mike the Gist Pesca for filling in, being the consummate host. I want to thank the incomparable David Epstein of ProPublica, the heart and soul of the Olympics Extra. Uh, he's the best at what he does. If you liked his commentaries here, you should buy his book, The Sports Gene, Inside the Science of Extraordinary Athletic Performance. I want to thank our intern, Laura Wagner, our producers, Afim Shapiro and Dan Bloom, for making me sound good and being great at what they do. I want to thank you guys for listening. And if you like these shows, please do me a solid and subscribe to Hang Up and Listen on iTunes. Be very helpful. Write us a review. That will help boost our numbers. Maybe even subscribe to Slate Plus, slate.com slash hangup plus. If you'd like to give us feedback, email hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Become a fan on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangup and listen. Our intern is Laura Wagner. The producers of the Olympics Extra are Afim Shapiro and Dan Bloom. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Ralph Metcalf, and thanks for listening. (laughs) Thank you. Obrigado. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. All about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>